0: Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future.
1: Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Yi Chu, Chief Commercial Officer at ADEX, the Singapore-based MAS-regulated security token exchange that is making privately managed assets and asset classes available to retail and institutional investors. Oyee, thank you for joining us.
0: I'm really glad to be here today with you, Dominic.
1: Now, ADEX has a longer history than many people think. It goes right back to 2017 when you were founded as iStocks. As you look back, are there lessons, are there things you think that the business could have done differently?
0: Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I kind of reflect a little bit of what's happened since 2017 to the day that we commercialized uh, and in 2017 that's when really the idea started and the company got seeded and built out its basic technology. We commercialized in uh, 2020. Uh, I would say that the biggest milestone was when we got the licenses and we commercialized and in reality what I would have liked to have done better was maybe to a few things, uh, think about the. B2B a little bit more actively uh, we started off as a B2C platform uh, and it was really there was not much choice then because covid happened in March 2020 and uh, it, we kind of sort of got the license and then we kind of opened up and we say oh you know oh no you know there was covid what are we going to do uh, so we slowly built the business around B2C and today we are obviously increasingly doing B2B uh, if there was no covid i would have liked to do that uh, a lot uh, earlier up front However, I think what that's really made us think very hard is how do we not just digitize the process of making investments, but also digitize the education of private market investments. And so the, you know, learning around, uh, you know, how do you create webinars? How do you do online content? I think that that really made us accelerate a lot of that uh, upfront. So that, that's been a great experience. It's given us a good track record. And now I think we're you know, on a good track to work with uh, other business uh, partners as well.
1: You mentioned uh, the seed capital you raised back in 2017. Uh, you now have a very powerful group of investors, including the Singapore Stock Exchange, Velikonia um, Fatra from Thailand, Tokai from Japan, Hanwha from Korea, and also, of course, the Development Bank of, of Japan, which is a, a very interesting Uh, investor to have. So how much capital have you have you raised? uh, And perhaps what explains the interest of of Development Bank of Japan in particular?
0: Yeah, so uh, we raised in total about 50 million US uh, in our first round of uh, Series A. So that includes the seed, a little bit of the seed funding. And as you mentioned, um, in the beginning, it was SGX and Heliconia, uh, along with some angel investors who who were in this uh, early round. And then, when as we were doing a round, uh, the Japanese investors uh, Tokai and then subsequently JIC uh, DBJ, as well as Patra as well as Hanwa from Korea came into that round. Um, I would say I wouldn't uh, say DBJ in particular, but across our Japanese investors, my observation is that uh, Japan is very open to new technology, and uh, Japan financial institutions are very much on the lookout for uh, things like tokenization. Blockchain. How does that disrupt financial services? Um, you know the future of financial services and private markets, and uh, they are certainly exploring different concepts back in Japan as well. And so I think uh, their, their curiosity around how does a platform like Addix in Singapore, how does that impact uh, them, or how do they learn from us, was really instrumental in them thinking about investing in us.
1: I should probably have asked you this up, up front, but uh, your own engagement in this project, because your own background is in, is in investment banking, but you also have experience of the real estate industry and the healthcare industries. Are there connections here between y- y- your experience in those three industries and ADEX? Are, does it help to explain what attracted you to join ADEX?
0: Yeah, um, that's a that's a good question. I I sort of reflect upon that a, a lot. I mean, what my um, his my history and my career has really led me to, to think about addicts. Um, I won't say so much healthcare, but real estate, you know, I was a real estate or actually I was a banker in the early 2000s. And what I saw was the uh, structural uh, evolution of REITs. So uh, the REIT rules in Singapore came about in early 2000 and, you know, after sort of one or two false starts, it, it really, you know, sort of exploded into a massive asset class. And to me, that was very interesting. Some structural changes in regulation uh, and, of course, added on to the exchange technology and electronic trading meant that you could fractionalize what was traditionally institutional grade uh, investment assets for retail. And if you think about it, that had actually changed the face of wealth and added a whole dimension of wealth tools for the retail investor as well as the institutional investor because of that, right? So I, I think uh, 20 years on, um, when I see what's happening in the market, it's not so much the sector that is uh, um, you know, driving what I, I do today, but the thought process of evolution of capital markets. And I think the private markets today are a little bit of like what the REITs were twenty years ago. That technology and regulations now have the opportunity to take the private market space and you know create the democratized access, uh, as it were, in twenty years ago REITs today in private markets.
1: Well, I was, I was about to ask you what explains the, the the focus on on privately managed assets. I think you you've kind of begun to explain that. So. Is, is real estate one of the asset classes you're starting to concentrate your efforts on to begin with?
0: Yes, I mean, in the, in the private uh, market space, real estate continues to be a big part of that as well. Uh, because if you look at the allocations of the large sovereign wealth funds, a lot of that is in privately managed real estate portfolios. Uh, we can't run away from that. That is still a thematic that's very exciting. But I think private markets is a lot more than that as well. It's also infrastructure. Uh, there's private equity funds, venture capital, growth companies. Uh, the range is very, very wide and certainly very exciting in terms of uh, thematic and what's happening in the space right now.
1: So privately managed assets are just a kind of initial focus, are they? Or are you looking to to expand uh, ADEX into the areas which the what we might call the traditional asset classes of publicly listed uh, equities and debt securities?
0: Yeah, I actually see the market for for private markets uh, still extremely, uh, it's large, and at the moment, there are not that many avenues for high net worth individuals uh, to access this market. So the space in private markets is actually, and you know, the potential for growth is is huge. I think the public markets is a space that would probably think very much about efficiency, So the access is there, but perhaps there are a lot of areas of efficiency that blockchain could solve. Uh, I mean, if you see what's happening with uh, SGX and ASX, everybody's experimenting some form of distributed ledger technology. But uh, personally, at the ADEX level, I think there's so much more disruption at the private markets level that technology can serve. Plus is a market that is uh, very, very little penetrated at the high net worth end. The, there's so many opportunities to do that that uh, I, I think public markets can wait a little while for us.
1: You've got enough to do, but you think the traditional exchanges will be starting to look at uh, blockchain technology more in the post-trade area to kind yep. of improve efficiencies there. And we'll, you, you can think about that much later on. Um, regulation in Singapore. Um, uh, I'm not an expert on it, but do you do you think that the the attitude of the Singapore regulators towards cryptocurrencies, towards the ICO boom back in 2017, 18, NFTs and now token issues,
0: have they got the balance right? I'm not sure that you can actually find balance anytime soon for any regulator. I think where the first starting point and which actually quite instrumental in addicts taking off is really the harmonization between digitization or tokenization into the securities world. Because that's sort of the first and easiest link. Uh, you, the, I mean, it's like saying electronic shares are shares, right? I mean, that, that's it's no different. And what they're just saying is that tokenized securities are the same as securities. Now, that's step number one. When it comes to cryptocurrency, I think there's a whole new different uh, paradigm where Singapore regulators have decided to focus on is actually some of the key areas in uh, Know Your Client and Anti-Money Laundering, which are some of the the key aspects of of crypto. And so they have designed that initial set of thinking around uh, what is called the Payment Services Act license. And that's what all the crypto exchanges are onboarding here uh, with. Now, is that going to change? I, I think that will have to evolve with you know the growth of the crypto world, uh, with you know with with DeFi being looked at. You know, how are they going to regulate DeFi? Is there a convergence of securities laws versus what's happening in the DeFi world? I think those are still big questions that no regulator has the answer to yet, and this will be continually evolving in the next you know four to five years.
1: Has the has the regulation environment? in relation to those other asset classes, you just mentioned DeFi, for example, has it made it more difficult or in a way easier to launch a regulated security token exchange?
0: I would say that uh, DeFi is sort of on one end of of that spectrum. When it comes to securities exchange, I think the regulators, uh, partly because I think we paved very much the way for it, a little bit more comfortable with uh, how securities exchange in the private space would uh, evolve and there are you know one or two more licenses that they have issued uh, behind us. But I think there's so much in the niche area that uh, would be quite interesting. So for example we cover certain classes like funds and equities, but equally things like um, climate exchange right uh, which does carbon credits or you know other exchanges have different alternative asset focuses. That allows the industry to really flourish a little bit more, and I think MAS is a bit more comfortable with that, where I think uh, that's being that's being researched quite deeply, uh, and I think watching the space across all the regulators in the world is thinking about you know uh, coins, right, cryptocurrencies, ICOs. Uh, NFTs. I'm not sure eventually NFTs would really be regulated. I think it would stay unregulated. And I think the definition, therefore, should be caught within whether it's a security or not security. So uh, NFT of art piece should, in theory, since art in the real world is not a security and therefore not regulated, I don't know that NFTs necessarily need to be regulated as such. But if somebody is trying to structure a financial product, and pass it off within an NFT. I think that's where the government then starts to realign uh, what needs to be re- regulated and not regulated.
1: Are you you brought this up right at the beginning when you talked about the focus on on retail investors. Is a major concern of the Singapore regulator access by retail investors to these privately managed asset classes. It's very easy to see how liquidity problems might arise, for example. And so yeah. if there was i don't know a group of retail investors lost a lot of money um that would not be a good day for for the regulator so how comfortable is the the regulator in singapore about the fact that you're giving retail investors access to these asset classes
0: um i think they're not 100% there yet uh, are there our uh, approaches to and and their uh, i mean their approach is accredited investors so they would be high net worth investors with investable assets of, let's say, one million Singapore dollars and above. Now, uh, I think where we come in and and we think about this and we're very careful about what we take on board is we solve two problems for these investors. And again, this could be expanded and replicated across across mass affluent and, and retail, like the mom and pops. But for now, we solve two problems for these high net worth individuals one is we fractionalize the private market investments what what are, what are some of the pain points in private banks when they have when when they uh, let's say pitch a hedge fund to a big client the minimum ticket size is a million and so if your investable asset is a million you're not investing a million into a hedge fund right so we break that down into bite sizes like twenty thousand ten thousand so one is size and therefore an investor can look at a private market portfolio and have it diversified, right? Twenty thousand in a hedge fund, twenty thousand in a private REIT, twenty thousand, and you know, so and so on, and so forth. The second thing that we saw for high net worth individuals, and this goes actually all the way up to ultra high uh, and family offices, is you know a lot of these funds are let's say five years or ten years. They're very long dated. They don't have liquidity, and so if an investor invests in private markets. One of the big risk items is that it's illiquid, right? And if they were to have a cash crunch or some squeeze or they have, you know, margin calls, they can't actually uh, uh, liquidate these assets as easily uh, as they should and will come at a price. And, And this is therefore, because these products were designed for sovereign wealth funds, they weren't designed for... A human, uh, like a person with different life cycles of cash, right? So, or, or, uh, or, or investments. So, we solve two pain points we solve liquidity and we solve uh, size. And I think that uh, MAS, oh, all of us are just learning and, and watching the space. And at some point, we will get to a point where this will be uh, accessible to retail and this will be in the bite sizes that are appropriate for retail. Uh, It does come with probably some additional regulations. It will come with additional disclosures and disclaimers for for the man on the street.
1: Mm -hmm. In terms of the issuers and the investors you're reaching already, presumably your regulatory status is reassuring. (laughs) Yes, yes. Now, I mean, we
0: well, that's, that's the premise that we operate on.
1: Yeah. I, I was going to add to that, you've got a funds license as well as an exchange license. Um, is that purely a reflection of the fact that you're looking to to list, as it were, funds? Or is there a deeper explanation?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, if I, if I may just clarify our licenses, Our license, we have a uh, capital markets license in dealing and securities and we have a capital markets license in custody and we have a recognized market operator which allows for uh, the secondary trading of of the assets now the reason why we have these assets uh, these licenses is our platform our technology is done, designed to issue the security it's designed to hold the security on trust for investors and is designed for the trading of these securities. So that's why we have these uh, three licenses because it aligns with what uh, our technological platform does.
1: Now, in terms of growing the market, obviously you need to, to find some issuers. How are you going about finding them?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. When we started, obviously, there were a few things that were against our favor. As I told you, COVID was one of them. We couldn't travel, we couldn't you know, meet, uh, uh, you know, uh, bigger international issuers, and you know, we worked with some of our partners and our you know, uh, related uh, parties to create product that were interesting for our investors, and so we're very grateful for that partnership. But we realized that once we got that track record going, so we, you know, we started growing our investor base, we started growing our issuers. And our issuers became, uh, you know, we expanded that to the Singapore network. So a number of our domestic-linked partners came on board with us as well. So Maple Tree, for example, which is one of the largest uh, real estate managers in, in, I mean, well, in this part of the world, but obviously headquartered in Singapore. We also have Sea Town, which is a very large uh, manager that uh, traditionally managed to funds and opened a portion for third party which we were very grateful to partner with uh, Fullerton and and all that so we we have the uh, group of uh, Singapore you know very strong uh, names uh, within Singapore what happened late last year in the third quarter was international fund managers saw what we were doing and I think the thinking around that was, how does tokenization change? How does democratization of these private funds influence the future of uh, fundraising? And so uh, we worked with Event SCOp, uh, which had a portfolio of multifamily assets in the US. We worked with Partners Group. As you know, Partners Group is one of the largest uh, global fund managers uh, in the world focused on private equity. Uh, and you know we continue to see that uh, global invest- issuer base, Either reach out to us, or we, uh, you know, connect with them through all of our existing relationships.
1: So you began by working with related parties, as it were. You're now broadening yeah. your um, range to include uh, genuine third-party issuers. Now, it, the conversation: How does it go with these issuers? What are the what are the sort of things you talk to them about as uh, uh, doing it this way, as opposed to doing a conventional, say, IPO or stock or bond market? issuance? Do you talk to them about costs or?
0: Yeah, uh, with with funds, I mean, uh, for example, you know, Partners Group, all, all these private equity funds, uh, I think the thinking that COVID, COVID forced everyone to think about what digitization means across the whole business value chain, right? And fundraising is one of them. When you cannot travel and you cannot do roadshows, you have to think that digitization presents that platform. So in the earlier days, uh, it was a bit like, okay, I, you know, all of them would be thinking about how do I add a different capital pool because of the struggles of COVID and that impact on fundraising. That was the initial discussion. Now, the current discussion, which is quite interesting, is how does the digitization and the whole Web 3.0 and, you know, self-service, wealth management, all that thematic start to come together. And so the conversations today are about, you know, what does tokenization mean for us to fundraise? And therefore, how do I experiment or learn or, or, you know, increase distribution through partners like Addicts. Um, It's generally not really about cost. It is about opening up a whole new capital source, which is the high net worth individuals, which traditionally uh, would be done through a few private banks. But now they're seeing opportunity sets to actually drive it even deeper. Uh, Where they see the um, convenience or the ease and efficiency of working with us is because we provide that single platform that's very efficient, So they always interface with a single body. They don't have to interface with, you know, the 70, 80, 90 investors on our platform individually. We also handle all the back-end distributions and all the notifications and all the roadshows, all of that. Uh, we manage that. So uh, fund managers have found that a, a very easy um a place to work with. Now on companies, now companies have come to us to raise financing both on the bond and the debt side as well as the equity side. And for those that come to us, what is happening is that they realise that the traditional route you require a very large size because the cost of doing that is very high. So therefore, for example, in the bond market, you won't necessarily tap the bond market unless you're doing a 250, 500 million type raise. And it takes, I don't know, three to six months with lawyers and bankers and trustees and, you know, depository agents and and all of that need to fall in place for that bond to be executed. Now, we have cut a lot of that away. So what happens is that for issuers who want to raise, let's say, short-term financing, because that's where it's obviously very cost-sensitive. And so we have financial institutions uh, and other corporates that have come to us to raise three-month-type working capital needs. Uh, It's very efficient because the speed to market is very quick. So, you know, for clients like, for example, CGS-CIMB, which is one of the large brokerage uh, firms in Singapore, the turnaround is very quick. And now you know, every three months it rolls over and, and they manage that cash flow uh, accordingly. And so we see that opportunity set working very well for corporates who need that. The, the last piece is the pre-IPO piece. Again, to raise, uh, where, because technology, the technology platform is very cost efficient, so it doesn't matter, I think the minimum raise you should be doing is about five million for the cost to make sense, but any, you know, But because you can go to market with a very small amount and it's scalable, therefore this presents a different proposition for companies who are doing pre-IPOs, who just need that little bit more capital to take it to the size and the growth level for an IPO. And so that's the company that we worked with, which is XM Studios, uh, which you know we very gratefully partnered Helic- Heliconia was the lead investor there and so we took this company uh, and we did a pre-IPO convertible bond on our platform very efficiently.
1: You've you described very clearly how issuers are able to raise smaller amounts more quickly. Um, are they hitting their funding targets? Are they, are they hitting the, the net amounts they wanted to raise in every case?
0: Yeah we do work very closely with each issuer Um, And so, we make sure we understand what they need in Mm -hmm. terms of capital. Um, And we do, I mean, we do take on those that obviously we have a very high level of uh, comfort that we can, you know, somewhat uh, make sure that target is reached. Uh, In this uh, scenario, I mean, which is why actually pre-IPO equities takes a little bit longer to gestate is in this case for XM, uh, Heliconia was already going to come in and anchor that deal. They had a fan base uh, that were very enthusiastic about also investing in the company. And we had investors who were very excited about uh, what may be a new growth, Singapore-grown uh, SME uh, to support that. So we, did, we have to do a lot of work before we onboard uh, a client because you know it's a lot of cost and time. So we have a team that does a lot of thinking and, you know, pre-sounding to test that with our investor base.
1: Now, I don't know what you regard as your marquee issue, maybe rather different from what I'm about to say. But one of the issues that caught my eye was this bond issue for SemCorp, run by, led by UOB. It, it was a big number was $675 million. And part of that $50 million was, was placed via ADEX in its tokenized form so it reminded me very much of the bond issue which sdx did uh on behalf of its parents six in in switzerland where the the issue was available both in the traditional form and in and in tokenized form what was your what was your thinking about that issue structuring it that way
0: yeah i you know that particular one and i think with bonds in general i think the traditional institutions the banks the asset managers i mean they are also wanting to see how this space, the bond space will evolve. Because if you think about uh, blockchain settlement issues, you know, uh, trustees, paying agents, that is causing obviously a lot of uh, uh, you know, intermediary steps and therefore intermediary costs, speed to market, etc., custody issues. So um, many of them are looking at uh, how do they do it uh, on an efficient platform? So I think that's one point. Uh, the second point is there's is, there's sort of two or three broad markets out there. So there's an institutional market, there's also the wealth market. And <clears throat> the wealth market, um, again, may be better served in a fractionalized manner. So there are a number of these thematics that are coming up in the, the bond world. Uh, and, and so certainly this is being reflected in the types of bonds that we're executing. So we did one for Azalea last year, which is a domestic-backed, uh, bond that's securitized by uh, private equity fund uh, ownerships. Uh, we also, of course, did the same comp one with UOB. That was something that UOB and ourselves worked very, very closely on because they uh, this is their uh, first step into uh, what is a blockchain driven, uh, custodized piece of the bond. And of course, of course, it helped that it was sustainability because that is such a thematic thing for UAB and, and it's uh, it, either its balance sheet or its investors. So there are many, many thematics around that. We see the bond space will continually evolve. Uh, we think it will take longer because there's so many incumbent players in there. Um, but you know, I think we're probably attacking a, a couple of areas that, that we think blockchain will come out the winner.
1: Now, talking of UAB as the, as the lead manager of that, of that issue uh one of the questions i have is 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 how important and you you said earlier that you've taken away a lot of the the, the sort of operational complexity of, of raising these small sums quickly but how important are the banks and the investment banks the law firms who have to write the documentation how important are they to the success of Adex and actually structuring and documenting these issues how closely do you have to work with them
0: We work with lawyers a lot, Um, we're very grateful that the legal community here is very supportive of what we do. And uh, I mean, even in the early days, they would be very keen to sit down with us and sort of think about how do we uh, legalize a token and how does that align with the the underlying security. So, uh, you know, most of the firms we we work, so I think there are about five or six law firms, the big ones, who have done transactions on our platform. So they understand this very well. They understand the the difference, you know, between the traditional security and how do you port that into a tokenized format. Uh, So lawyers for sure. With investment banks, um, we work very closely with UOB. But I think at the moment, because the space is so new, the it tends to be the corporate finance boutique houses that are, uh, you know, just quicker with the program because it also plays to their clientele. But yes, we do think the ecosystem is going to expand. Uh, CGS Cimb, for example, when they issued their commercial paper, they were selling. You know, they were distributing that back to their end customers as well. So it's not just structuring; it's also about distribution and partnering uh, across the board.
1: Right. Now you've had a lot of success with with fund issuers. Can we talk about those a little bit? I think I'm right to say you've had issues from real estate funds and private equity funds. You alluded to this earlier. What 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 have they found? I don't know. I'm a real estate fund. I'm a private equity fund. What is attractive to me about this? Is it is it new types of investor? Uh, is it exiting investments? What's the what's 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 drawing them in? Because you've definitely had success in this area, have you not?
0: Yeah, I, I think funds has been actually one of the most successful uh, or the biggest part of our business because it, it plays to both needs. So as I mentioned on the fund side, because fundraising was so difficult during COVID that um, fund managers had to be very thoughtful in and ad, adding approaches to the fundraising, right? So that fundraising toolkit needed to be enhanced and digital platforms are starting to be one of them. Um, I think they see a different capital pool. I don't know that the world will move completely towards servicing the high net worth individual. I think that that would not be the case. And therefore, they need somebody to sort of translate what is an institutional product to a retail product, right, or a high net worth product. And as I said, the technology that we've built... Serves that, so we have basically taken an institutional product that was designed for sovereign wealth funds, and on our end, slightly redesigned that for high net worth. And what is that fractionalization? So we allow smaller sizes and liquidity for these end investors. Now we have to be very careful, and I, as I said to you, we we have you know we have that legal translation because we want to make sure that the underlying fund isn't uh, complicated by all this activity at the back end. So that's what a lot of the structuring and legal work uh, that we do. So the fund manages to see us, for example, almost like addicts as a single uh, limited partner into the fund. Right. So that's that's the first piece. So it, that's what uh, funds like about it. Um, and and we think that this will actually really continue to scale on, on our end. On the investor side, many of our investors, uh, if you think about it, they are probably not uh, extremely well served by the private banks in this space. So if they wanted to go to the public markets, the plenty, right? I mean, there's plenty of apps, there are plenty of brokerage firms, there's plenty of banks that will cover them at the privilege level, uh, but they don't see the private market stuff. And to me, uh, there's a lot of opportunities set in the private markets. For example, private REITs that have a little bit more leverage tend to have a higher distribution yield, right? And, uh, but because of that leverage, is slightly riskier, which is why it's not in the public REIT space. But some of these clients would, wouldn't mind that additional risk. Because they, you know, like the manager, like a uh, maple tree, for example. They think you know they have a lot of trust in that name. So uh, our investors see us now almost like a supermarket of private markets of sorts. And for them, they're like, hey, you know what? I can build a portfolio of a venture capital uh, fund in China. I would never ever get that opportunity as an investor in any bank to see that. Uh, Or, you know, I could do a private real estate, you know, European logistics uh, fund, you know, elite that did a a fundraising with us had uh, invested in logistics assets in the days when nobody wanted to talk about real estate. And they just exited their portfolio to Blackstone, I mean, at an incredible return. And so our investors were extremely happy. This is not something that you would typically get in the public markets. And so they can now build that portfolio of very interesting investments for themselves.
1: I would have thought that private equity funds, VC funds present a particular difficulty and they're not the same as mutual funds or even as hedge funds. I mean, they have capital calls, for example, do they present particular challenges if you're trying to tokenize them?
0: Yes. Um, all, all of these funds have challenges, which is why, you know, it never really existed to serve the high net worth individuals. As you mentioned, uh, private equity funds, as well as venture capital funds have capital call, uh, you know, Constraints. One thing I would say is, at the at the get go, we are providing some products that are a little bit more designed for high net worth. So, Partners Group, for example, is an open ended uh, fund of uh, funds, and and therefore they uh, create either uh, they're open ended, so you can actually redeem that. Uh, plus, it's fully seeded, so there're no issues around capital calls. Uh, We do have those with capital calls. So, for example, uh, C-Town had multiple capital calls. Uh, We have to be very thoughtful in the way we do it. So, um, at the simplest structure is we call capital upfront. And, of course, that is not the most efficient. Uh, We do think that the funds that we have, though, are so uh, hard to access and hard to find that investors uh, focused on the money multiple, rather than the IRR, which is the most impacted by you know calling capital front. The second thing we've done is we've designed a structure for certain uh, group of clients that we can take credit risk for. That is actually where we do have a separate structure for multiple capital calls. So we, have, we do have a solution for it. It's not a scalable one yet for all our investors, but we think we'll find a solution soon. This question
1: may be, Theoretical as much as as practical, but you you brought up the question of open ended versus closed ended funds. It's easy for a you know somebody like me looking at it to think well, closed ended funds would be a lot easier to to manage on a on a tokenized exchange. But then if you're going to uh, to try and replace, I suppose the take the a straightforward mutual fund where the redemption issuance and redemption process is entirely principle based. You know the manager issues them, you buy it from the manager, redeems it, you get your money back. If we move towards a world in which those mutual fund shares or units are being valued both in a secondary market, but also maybe by a net asset valuation process done by a fund accountant, what's that? What is that? How do you expect that market to evolve? That's what I mean. Maybe it's a (laughs) theoretical question at this point rather than a practical one, but, but I can see lots of advantages if I was an investor in a mutual fund to actually being able to obtain a price. In in the secondary market and sell the units, and there'd be advantages for the manager too, in terms of much more continuity of capital and, and so on. It, are, are you having those conversations with with issuers?
0: We uh, well, we see different responses to that, but I would say that observationally, from I mean our uh, data and our trading, that um, there is somewhat of a reference point to NAB And uh, I think that investors uh, do sort of look at what's the last NAV, they put out a price, and then they kind of decide, okay, how urgent they want to sell this. And then there's a bit of a, usually a slight bit of discount. Um, Those that have NAVs that are a lot more frequent, so like, you know, um, all the hedge funds tend to have a monthly NAV, those tend to trade a little bit more. Those that are actually uh, real estate based and people are just sort of clipping the 8% or 7% distribution generally don't trade that a lot. But when they do, it's generally around NAV as well. Um, I don't know, again, theoretical as to whether this dynamic changes as we grow the base and have a lot more activity. Uh, I suspect we would still stay quite close to what's happening with, with the NAV. But you're right. I mean, one of the exciting things about, the, for example, the Partners Group Fund is that um, you can you know, you know can buy it and then you can redeem it. Uh, and then actually, if you want a short-term liquidity event, you can actually sell it onto the platform. So I think those are all great uh, aspects to add on to the tool set for investors.
1: If I asked you how fund issue whether fund managers are starting to think of themselves in fact as issuers now as opposed to be fund managers is there is their mentality changing they're starting to think well as an issuer i can have a more direct relationship with my with my investors um maybe i can reach different types of of investor maybe my funds will actually attain even higher value you mentioned a discount a minute ago maybe over time they'll get a higher valuation once they're traded properly in a secondary market have you noticed a change in the mentality of the fund managers you're working with
0: no i think not yet uh i do think that we are still a very nascent industry Um, and i think the 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 thought process behind liquidity is um you know a little bit at the further end of fund managers minds especially for those who are in private equity or or venture capital Um, they have also very different Longer, much, much longer-term view, right? When you're managing a 10-year fund, you don't necessarily want to think about the near-term liquidity uh, for your underlying investors. So, and I think for now, they, it is uh, uh, too small, too young for it to impact the broader fund. At some point, I think maybe in sort of the next decade or so, that will become something that will be hotly debated within the space. But I think uh, we're, we're, at the, we're at the moment sort of saying, look, I mean, if, the, if we distribute, let's say the high net worth distribution is less than 5% of the fund, uh, most of the fund accountants don't see that as a valuation issue. So we'd like to, for now, keep it that way uh, and see where the world evolves.
1: Let's talk about the, the investors a bit. You, you mentioned a minute ago the, the elite uh, logistics fund, which... When it, when it when they sold that portfolio they achieved twice the projected re- returns on that so my, my question is uh, is that true of, of everything that's happened on 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 your exchange so far are investors starting to see the benefits of tokenization actually getting not just different asset classes but actually much higher returns
0: well we've been Very fortunate. So we've had, uh, our hedge funds have generally done quite well. I think since listing more than 35% up, uh, in spite of a little volatility here and there in the last couple of months, um, obviously Elite exited at a very high uh, return as well. Uh, we, We do have products that stretch across the risk curve and therefore the return curve. And I think what's great about that is, um, for example, at one end, the short-term paper is, let's say, 1% to 2%. But there is actually such a big need for short-term returns uh, that are more than what there's fixed deposits today that our investors are very excited about that. It's actually one of our most popular uh, products as well. Now, anywhere in between uh, suddenly becomes, okay, I, I I can actually put in private markets where it's also less volatile. Right. If you think about the REIT markets, the REIT markets have also gone like this through COVID. But on our platform, because everyone's focused on NAV and the, the true fundamentals of the asset and the portfolio, that it does tend to be a lot more stable uh, as well for the, for, the, for the REITs. So I don't see that, I mean, we're not going to always have the 30-50% type return uh, products. Um, but what we want to do is create um, the full risk curve for anybody with that different risk appetite to have products to work with.
1: Now how are you? You've explained how you go about looking for issuers. How do you, how do you go about finding investors? You, you've said a number of times that this the type of investor is not particularly well served by the existing private banking networks, but presumably the private banks actually have these investors that you want to reach. How do you go about accessing the investors you want to reach or your issuers want to reach?
0: Yeah, I think we, uh, in Singapore, because of our, I mean, our shareholders um, and, you know, the fact that we're Singaporean and MAS and all that, and again, MAS has been very supportive of of us as well, we do get quite a lot of visibility here and we partner that with, um, you know, digital marketing, Uh, we do a lot of webinars and education. And so we we onboard that. Uh, we also have an app, so our app's been quite powerful driving uh, account openings as well. Um, and because of actually the nature of our webinars, we were starting to see investors who like the idea of tokenization and like the idea of private markets and the ease and the access of that, actually uh, onboarding with us as well. So about 27% of our investors actually come from outside Singapore. And all that is at, because again, you know, by force of nature, digitally driven.
1: Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned earlier you, you have a um, you have a minimum investment threshold. I think you said twenty thousand. Was it US dollars, not Singapore dollars? Um, and you know, there are earnings and and net worth thresholds as well. So you you are aiming at this this high net worth um, group of investors. What's the dynamic between that and fractionalization? You know, to which you you've also referred. I guess twenty thousand is enables people to achieve that that diversification, but you also don't need to be fabulously rich to start accessing these these as, asset classes as well. And is the plan here eventually to, to to totally democratize what you're doing? Once you've succeeded with this group and shown the model works, and there are no disasters for investors, that you can actually create a truly democratic Means of access to all sorts of asset classes, which people simply can't get access to, to now. Yeah. Is that is that the thinking?
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's no technological reason why these investments cannot be fractionalized to a thousand dollars or five hundred dollars. Right? It's hmm. it's a it's a construct that's set up. Uh, it's a combination of a regulatory as well as a commercial construct because what we don't want is obviously to offer it you know if we offer 500 we we'd have to get many people to do $500 right mm-hmm. um, so the technological constraints are uh, you know relatively not as difficult as the regulatory constraints um, i do think that there are some ways for private markets product to reach retail and it it will require some time and some work but the answer is absolutely yes i mean if you think about Uh, how exciting the thematics we see on our platform so you know for example our investors want impact you know we'll have an impact fund Uh, if our investors want uh, decarbonization um, you know ideas we have a decarbonization fund so I think um, this this all should eventually be available and democratized to the retail investor
1: You, you mentioned that a lot of your investors are coming from outside Singapore
0: are they based mainly in Asia
1: or are they coming from all over the world
0: they come from all over the world. So we, you know, when they reverse inquiry into our platform, uh, we see Asians, uh, we see Europeans. Um, we don't at the moment accept U.S. investors, uh, unfortunately, just because of the cost of managing that. But we have actually other North Americans like Canadians have uh, onboarded with us. Mm-hmm. So they do come from all over the world. Uh, we're super excited about that. I think they see the theme and they, they like what we do.
1: And one one other thing that tokenization does offer you is, is flexibility over exactly what's being tokenized as well do you ever worry that investors think they're buying when they buy a token they think that it's just like a share in a, in a company gives them ownership rights and entitlement to dividends and corporate actions and rights issues and so on whereas they might actually be buying something slightly different in a, in a tokenized environment they might be buying a share of I don't know net revenues or, or gross revenues yep. or something without the real ownership rights how well do you think the investors understand that how hard do you work
0: to remind them that's a possibility so where um, we have we have we try to make this as pure as possible so we try to ensure that our token for the token for a fund unit or a token for a node unit is as pure as possible. So that is, uh, um, uh, I think, where the world should end up. That, uh, But that's because we're a securities exchange. So we already have an underlying security. Uh, there are certain cases where we've had to set up a SPV sort of feeder structure. and But at the end of the day, the investor does uh, own that SPB. So, what is important with the MES regulations is to align that and say, you know, the digitized uh, unit should be the underlying unit itself. And that's how our documentation and legal work reflects as well. Whatever you get, so for example, for if some bizarre reason that annex uh, went down, the holder of that token will eventually hold a piece of paper which owns that unit of fund or owns that unit of uh, shares. Now, this is because of the way we are set up. There are a lot of other tokenized exchanges that may or may not uh, be set up that way. And like you said, they could uh, own a portion of a revenue share or or, or otherwise. And uh, that eventually is something that this space will also evolve. So I'm quite interested to see where this will go as well. For example, NFTs, right? People are talking about, you know, royalty streams.
1: Yeah. Now, we, we talked about all these things without really discussing um, the operational side of, of, of what you do. Maybe a good starting point is to ask you what what services ADEX is actually supplying? Are you doing the issuance, the trading, the settlement, the custody, or is it some different or more limited combination of services?
0: No, that's, that's exactly right. So with every um, fund or, or security that we put on, uh, the tokenization is merely the uh, digitization of the entire security and the exercise. What our investors see at the front end, I mean, they're just looking at, I'm interested in this fund and clicking the subscribe button. Then what happens is that token gets issued, that their money sort of cross, and mm-hmm. then that sits on our platform. And then if there's any future distributions or coupons. Then automatically our platform will then calculate and pay into the investor's account. So we handle all of that. In terms of custody, you know, we because it's a distributed ledger, we, uh, you know, our um, that's how our custody sits. So our our investors know that we are obviously tracking um, who owns what on our ledger, and that's obviously one of the more powerful things around uh, blockchain. So that that's the custody piece, and then on the settlement side. Uh, What we have done with blockchain is obviously um, ensure instantaneous settlement. So if somebody was going to buy a token, he would need to ensure that he has the amount of fiat tokens in his his, uh, wallet. But on the same side, we know that when an investor sells a token, that he has that ownership of that. So the crossing of that trade is instantaneous because we don't have the second guess. Today, you're kind of a little bit, you know, from one broker to the other broker, they, they, they kind of like go to figure out who has the shares and who has the money. And that's why it takes T plus three to settle these uh, trades in the market today.
1: You've used the term account and the term wallet. Um, maybe that was a slip of the tongue or or, or a, the, these terms can be used interchangeably. But I think I've, I've understood you to say that the, the wallets need to be pre-funded. You need to have the cash there. You need to have the uh the tokens there for settlement to to take place now how is cash how how do you bring cash onto the onto the network
0: yeah so the we would an investor would transfer cash from their account to the segregated account that resides uh, within addicts and this is run by a traditional bank and has segregated accounts Mm -hmm. so uh we always reconcile that as a group of of cash and every time cash comes in, what we mint what is called a fiat token. So there is a dollar for dollar token version of the fiat on our platform. That's how this is executed. So the securities and the fiat tokens kind of cross this way.
1: Right. Okay. And the custody function how does that um, how does that work? Can people choose their own wallet? Have a third party wallet provider, or do they have to use yours? Or yeah. At the moment,
0: they have to use ours. Um, the way that we were constructed, and part of that is obviously MAS and cybersecurity and all of that and KYC and AML. Mm-hmm. Our platform is built as a private permissioned uh, blockchain and exchange. And so our tokens are not uh, not usable outside of our platform. At some point, uh, obviously the world, if the world does go decentralized and you know, there are going to be different uh, aspects of custody that we need to think about, that's difficult to consider now just because of the way that MAS requires us to make sure that our, you know, who our clients are, you know, and what sits on our platform and how do we make sure that these securities are properly custodized and kept. Um, so I think it'll be some time before that fungibility outside of our platform will exist.
1: And uh, did I hear you say that you're doing the KYC AML CFT sanction screening yourselves are you both for the issuers and for the investors yeah. absolutely right. what what technologies are, are you using and i'm thinking here particularly on the custody side um, whether you built this all in-house or whether you're working with third parties or some combination
0: oh no we've built that all in-house right
1: okay so no third party vendors are involved at all okay um last question on the operational side liquidity uh, how do you and maybe this is again a theoretical question, and you're thinking about this in the long term as well as the short. How do you generate liquidity in these tokens? Do you need to think in terms of having lead brokers or in terms of having old-fashioned market makers to start to make prices in in tokens?
0: At the moment, it's purely investor driven. So in, at the moment it's purely you know a marketplace uh, of our mm-hmm. investors you know doing that. Uh, over, and of course, as uh, you would know, it's, we're still small. And so the volume is not sort of there yet. The other issue with private markets is that because these funds are so hard to come by, most investors don't want to sell, right? Because they're actually quite happy with the returns or they, they want to see the growth of the, the fund. They want to see the venture capital fund invest and, and exit. Uh, so we, we don't have that dynamic as much as the public markets do. But we do see a little bit of that. So, for example, the pre-IPO equity XM Studios trades uh, quite a bit, uh, you know, our feeder fund into QuantEdge, which is a global macro hedge fund, also does tend to trade a, a bit. Um, and I think this dynamic will continue to grow. Now as the uh, space gets bigger and deeper, then that's when I think market makers will find it very interesting to come in and uh, do that. But that's more a second sort of probably another one to two years for this to develop really much deeper.
1: Mm-hmm. How does what's what's your commercial model? How does how does Adex get paid by issuers and investors?
0: So we work uh, with issuers around that. So um, issuers pay us for the listing and the distribution. Um, our investors also have a subscription fee model. So depending on the type of product, if it's a no, like a short-term paper, then the, the, there's less fees involved. But if it's a, obviously a, a bigger fund or there's a bit more growth in that, then the, there's a little bit more fee involved. Mm-hmm. More complex products, and we need, you know, we need to execute a bit more post-trade activity, and that, that's obviously a bit more expensive for both sides.
1: I'm going to let you go in a minute, but before I do, I'd like to talk a little bit with you about. What happens next? Be a bit more forward-looking and and ask how the how you expect the business to grow. And one thing that that, that caught my eye was the tie-up you announced back in November with 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 Tokai, um, which is obviously a major Japanese financial institution. It's one of your one of your core partner investors. Um, it's got this digital securities license in Japan. As I understand the transaction, it's they're going to to sell your your fractionalized private assets basically in, in to Japanese. Uh, investors and uh, now is that is is that a model you think you're going to repeat going forward and is it how is it being presented in Japan is it like a branded as ADEX or is it branded or privately labeled by Tokai are they selling ADEX or are they selling Tokai
0: yeah um, I think that the Japan case study is very interesting Partly because, I mean, first of all, they're, they're a shareholder, so clearly, you know, they're very enthusiastic about working with us. They, they, they saw the vision of that, and so they wanted to work with us. Where we spent a large part of time was actually getting uh, FSA approval for them to do this. Because obviously they're working with an offshore exchange and they're distributing product back into Japan and to their Japanese investors. So it took a while to make sure that everybody was comfortable with this construct. Um, so, they've done their first uh, real estate fund transaction and they uh, distributed to their investors. I think it was obviously a Tokai led deal um, and edX. It was like, you know, powered by edX kind of approach. I think we could do a lot more in Japan uh, with Tokai as a partner. I think that Japan is very much curious about how this is going to develop as well. So, we see that as a big space. Mm-hmm. Um, we see growth in Thailand as well. We have a Thai shareholder, Patra, whom we work very closely with to see how we can deepen that space in the Thai market uh, between you know, Thailand and Japan. They're obviously very large wealth markets as well. Uh, we think there are a lot of opportunities for international fund managers uh, to work with us to do this distribution in, in both these large markets. And then of course, finally, we have China, uh, where we work with an asset manager in in China to, we have a quota for uh, onshore investors who want to invest offshore. And we have that quota already. We're just working through the mechanics of making sure that you know all the funds are being approved at the Chinese level for these investors to invest in as well. So, geographically, we think um, these are very exciting markets, and we will spend you know the good part of this year executing and you know trying to get deeper into these markets.
1: Is there any reason why Adex itself shouldn't start to open up in in other financial centers? Or if you came across an organisation which was looking to do something very similar to what you do, would you consider white labelling your, your technology, you built it all, your, all yourselves? Is this, is this part of your, your growth thought process to work with partners maybe in other financial centres or even to open there yourselves?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think we, at the moment in the shorter term, have a lot of work to do um, with the existing plans that we have. Uh, would, I, would we consider overseas? Absolutely, at some point. We think there's a lot more partnerships already that we can handle from here on. Uh, we think a lot of banks and other asset managers and financial institutions are looking at the space and how do we work together. Now, um, when I think of white labeling, actually, in fact, the way I think about us is a little bit like SGX or a, or a NASDAQ or NYSE, they don't necessarily white label themselves, but in reality, so for example, if somebody, you know, if a private banker says, do you want to buy an Apple stock? They don't actually say, do you want to buy an Apple stock on NYSE, right? That's a given. So I'd like to see us as part of that given. If somebody says, would you like to buy a, an InvestCorp fund or a, a or a Partners Group fund, the private banker is not saying, oh, by the way, it's on an ADEX exchange because we would be so much part of that infrastructure that it just, you know, be part of that, co- not even need to be part of that conversation.
1: We're talking of SGX, how do they view ADEX? They're obviously you know a shareholder but do they do they see you as a hedge as a rival as a as a feeder of of business to them how does that relationship work
0: we have a great relationship with SGX Um, they have a, a representative on our board and they've been extremely supportive in a number of ways when we first started we needed to think of uh, the basic concepts, right? The SOPs of running an exchange, even if it's a slightly different market, there's some concepts. So, if you see some of the um, the way we think about, you know, building out the tech, the way that we've uh, built out the legal, you know, sort of governance piece, the listing committee, ex- for for example, is a little bit of them uh, and us working together to build that. And over time, uh, I think where they see us is the private market extension, that's one. It's a market that they're currently not in. Um, but two, more importantly, do we help them incubate a lot of these pre-IPO companies to be eventually listed on SGX? And I think that's a very important long-term narrative because there will be companies will stay private longer and longer. And they will have capital needs that are, you know, maybe can be uh, carried out Prior to going to the full IPO market. And so I think this is very synergistic with what uh, SGX wants to do. The other thing is, SGX gets a you know, front row view of where this technology might develop. How does distributed ledger change uh, the exchange world in the next decade? And I think um, so. We work very, very closely together. We're very grateful for that. They recommend a lot of clients over. We, you know, are, are a lot of issuers and all that across. Um, and, you know, we stay very, very closely connected.
1: The exchange world over the next decade, if we, and this really is my last uh, question for you, if we look over a slightly longer time span than, than 10 years, if we look at the long history of, of stock exchanges, we've always seen that that in the end, you can start with multiple exchanges in a country, but you end up with one. This is where liquidity gets, gets concentrated. You get these centralized infrastructures, if you like, where capital meets uh, people who can use that that capital, and if, I, if we zoom back into to Singapore, where you, where you are now, um, you've obviously got regional ambitions. You, in the very long term, you've clearly got got global ambitions as well. You're you're acting on those those regional ambitions now, particularly in Japan and, and Thailand. But even in Singapore itself, um, you're not alone, are you? Um, DBS is looking at this. Um, the Swiss STX are, are, are planning some sort of digital exchange in in Singapore as well. Do you expect? the the way that tokenized markets are going to evolve will be different from the sort of analog world of the past where there was a kind of consolidation process and you ended up with one exchange in in each market in other words is there in the long term going to be room for more than one token exchange in in
0: singapore you know first of all i think the market the private markets is a very big broad deep untapped space for now And I think that it can, for now, tolerate a number of exchanges with uh, different ideas or constructs to attack different markets. So I do see that, I mean, if you think as what uh, appears from DBS is, everything is going to be tokenized. Everything outside of uh, exchanges, the public exchanges today, might be tokenized. I mean, you can tokenize uh, wine, there could be a wine bag note. You can tokenize a cask of whiskey, right? So, so if you think about now how that uh, is going to happen, there, may, there will be many, many different sub-asset classes that will develop from this, from this tokenization. So the space itself is very large. Um, I think the bigger curiosity point is how does this converge with the private uh, with the public markets because of the tokenization and the tradability and the liquidity does it or does it not at some point converge and I think that's a very very exciting question but I think the the sort of Again, I come back to, at the moment, there is no solution or very minimal solution for both the investors and the issuers that we cover in this space. So I think there's a long, long way to go, and the market can probably tolerate a number of exchanges, whether in a decentralised manner or not. The consolidation play is probably a decade away.
1: Wei Yi Chu, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us.